Hi, this is Chris Newmarker. I'm editor of Medical Design and Outsourcing, a mass device resource. FDA recently reported a startling fact. Most of the 66 medical devices approved for children during the 2017 fiscal year were originally intended for adults. This could be a problem. To state the obvious, kids aren't the same physically as grown-ups. To help discuss the challenges around pediatric medical devices and what is being done to spur innovation, we have Mike Drews joining us today. Mike is president of Vascular Sciences. He's a regulatory consultant in Southern California who has worked with both device makers and FDA. Mike, welcome back to MDO. Thanks, Chris. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. So to start out, I mean, why are there so few medical devices on the market for kids? I mean, why why are there so few? It's a great question, Chris, and I think the reason is, uh, is several-fold. First and foremost is the obvious, and that is, um, quite frankly, it's not a big market. As a general rule, for any given device, we use a lot more devices for adults, especially as they get older, than they do for kids. So uh, there's not a big market. There's not a big demand for these kinds of devices. In addition to that, um, most devices, as we'll discuss, that are used in kids are used off-label. In other words, although they're not specifically indicated or tested for kids, physicians can still do, use them anyway. Um, and oftentimes, because of the physical or mechanical nature of many devices, physicians can modify these devices by uh, making them smaller, ch- bending them, changing the shape or whatever, to kind of adopt them, if you will, to, uh, to, to, to solve the problem in the kid. Because after all, Chris, as you know, uh, mother uh, um, um, uh, need is the necessity for invention. Right, so um, so there is clearly a demand. Yeah, absolutely. And just one other thing, just one other thing I would point out in this introduction, Chris, and that is this is not a new problem. We've known about this lack of medical devices for kids for for I would say decades. That's number one, and number two, this problem is not unique to medical devices. We face the exact same issues in drugs. Here's an interesting statistic for uh, for our audience, who's mainly a medical device audience, but here's a stat from the drug world. Two-thirds of the drugs that we routinely use in kids are not labeled for kids. They were never tested in kids. And for newborns, I know, Chris, you have some young kids yourself. Yeah. For newborn babies, 90% of drugs that are given to to, to to newborn babies are 90% of them are given off-label. So, uh, so this is not unique to medical devices. Yeah, it's it, totally. I am even re- recalling with, uh, with with our daughter has a slight birthmark, and we've you know been using an off-label use of a glaucoma drop on it. I mean, it was, the dermatologist said to basically rub this on her birthmark, you know, twice a day, but it's supposed to be an eye drop. I mean, it's it's uh, it's definitely an interesting. Um, interesting situation um i mean i mean you know it's interesting the amount that's actually accomplished i mean considering you know the fact that there's so many devices or drugs actually approved for for children i mean i'm just thinking that you know even just you know last december you know the world's smallest surviving baby you know, was delivered in, in San Diego. And, you know, I, uh, I, I checked out a TV news clip you, you forwarded my way before this discussion, you know, the, from CBS 8 out there. And, you know, the doctors described how they had to, you know, they had to alter a breathing tube to keep the baby alive. Um, I mean, NICUs are always are doing all kinds of stuff like that all the time. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of success with premature babies, um, you know, like 
like a lot of uh, a lot of children that probably would not have survived even just you know a decade or two decades ago are surviving. So, well, I mean, that's an excellent point, Chris. And as I said, necessity is the mother of, an invent- of invention. So if a uh, uh, if a physician has a patient, uh, a child, or or a newborn baby, or somebody in a NICU, um, and there's not a <clears throat> a solution on the market that will solve that problem, then of course they will do all that they can and they should do all that they can to try to help that patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and from a regulatory perspective, the reason why that's important, Chris, is because when a physician modifies an existing device, then obviously that's the practice of medicine. And as you and I have talked about before, FDA does not regulate the practice of medicine. In other words, physicians can use our devices to do anything they want. What are the regulatory implications of that then? I mean, because it sure seems like there's a lot of off-label use going on and it's it's off-label use that's needed, you know, because of the situation. What are the implications? So I think the the implications are twofold. First, let's talk a bit on the regulatory side and then more importantly, we'll talk about on the, the engineering and the technology side. So on the regulatory side, as I said, this has been uh, a known problem for quite a long time, and FDA, as well as the broader U.S. government, has tried to create some incentive programs for medical device companies to work in this space, kind of similar to the orphan drug program, if any of you in the audience are familiar with with that, um, providing drug and biotech companies an incentive to develop drugs and biologics uh, to serve um, populations where clearly there's no economic justification for doing it. The FDA created uh, something called the Pediatric Device Grants Program back in 2009, a decade ago, uh, to try to create incentives. Whether that's enough or not, you know, that's I'll leave open to, to others to debate. In my opinion, it's not for a variety of reasons. First of all, as you alluded to, the statistics for pediatric medical devices are pretty abysmal. And when you look at the funding of the program that I just mentioned, for example, last calendar year in, 20, in 2018, the total funding for that program was only $6 million. That's not an awful lot of money. Like a to, drop in the uh, bucket when you consider well, that. Yeah. A, a drop in the bucket. I couldn't say it better myself. So clearly, the ocean. There yeah. be, uh, clearly there needs to be more incentives. And I do think creating something stronger, more akin to the orphan drug program would be would be beneficial. But I also got to put a lot of the impetus here on um, on industry as well. In other words, one of the things that differentiates my approach to regulatory compared to so many others, Chris, is I refuse to use regulation as an excuse to hold me back. So in other words, if a company comes to me, for example, and says, hey, we have a really cool idea for a medical device that could be beneficial in kids, I will work them, work with them in many as many different ways as I can with the existing regulation. For example, and we can talk about this more later if you want, taking advantage of real-world evidence, taking advantage of uh, less commonly used regulatory pathways like the humanitarian device exemption or the HDE, something that I've done several times to try to help pediatric devices get onto the market. There are a lot of different things that we can do without creating new regulation, without creating new programs that companies can do right now to try to, uh, to, to, to improve this problem. Um, yeah, well, the so, problem doesn't. I mean, it sounds like um, like like the problem is really about the market size. I mean, it's it's the fact that all the 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 hurdles that a device company has to go through to get a device, you know, approved or or even cleared, are 
you know, like, I mean, it's, it, there's, there's already, already a lot to do when you're just doing something generally for adults and with, with, you know, if you're doing something for children, that's just like a section of the population. So, so it's, 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 it's much harder to, uh, you know, for a corporation to decide like, oh, we, we want to put the resources into this anyway, even though it's, it's a much smaller market. Well, I understand your point, Chris, and I'm sure that many, many people would say exactly the same thing that you did. However, with all due respect, I think that's rapidly becoming antiquated thinking, and here's why. Uh, one of the, the trends for the future is not to develop a single medical device that you're going to sell to thousands or millions of people, but rather to take a more personalized approach, whether it's using 3D printing or something else. And when it comes to uh, personalized medicine, what difference does it make if you're making uh, a, a million devices or a single device for an 80-year-old or for an 8-year-old? So I really think that as personalized medicine becomes more accepted and more popular in the, in the future, one of the tangential benefits of it is that it's also going to help kids um, get the devices that they need because we can literally make a medical device specifically for a kid or even you know, a, a, a neonate without any significant difference comparing to uh, to an 80-year-old. So really, if we're personalizing it, might as well personalize this for children, too. Absolutely. Personalized medicine applies to people across the board, whether they're, they're 8 days old or 8 months old or 8 years old or 80 years old. It doesn't make any difference. You know, why should we care about this? Why is it a problem that we don't have many medical devices labeled for kids? Well, so again, I think there's several reasons, some of which we've talked about already, uh, but I think that we need to use, to stop using excuses to hold us back, you know, as a, as a, as a father of some very young kids yourself, I hope you can really appreciate the, um, the importance of working in this area. And simply put, uh, there's much more that the, the government and the FDA can do, but much more importantly for, for me and for us, there's much more that, the, that our industry can do. You know, I mentioned right. some of the programs that the government is setting up. Let's talk, take a look at, uh, at the, uh, one last thing to, to, to mention on the regulatory challenges um, in terms of regulation and guidance. I did a um, quick search of FDA's guidance document database prior to our today's call, and there are 23 guidances having to do with pediatrics in all of FDA. However, of those 23, only five of them are applicable to medical devices, and three of those five are um, technology-specific. In other words, only two of them apply to pediatric devices across the board. Of those two that apply to pediatric devices across the board, the most recent one came out in 2014. So that's, what, uh, six, six years ago or something like that? And um, uh, much more frustrating to me is when you look at that guidance, it's only 12 pages long. So what does that say about uh, creating, you know, uh, incentives for companies to work in this area? But more right. importantly, Chris, I think is the is the technological challenges. So maybe we can spend a few minutes talking about some of those. Yeah, totally. I mean, what are the technological challenges? So there's some very fundamental ones, and most of these are commonsensical. You know, you don't have to have a Ph.D. in biomedical engineering to appreciate that there are some very significant technological challenges here. One is that when you put a medical device into a patient, it does not grow with that patient. So if a patient is, uh, is a fully formed adult, 
we don't have to worry too much about uh, the, the, the change in the anatomy of the patient. In some cases, like for example, a triple A graft, an abdominal aortic aneurysm graft, this can be a problem. But for most devices, the growth of the patient is not a problem. But as you can imagine, Chris, if we have a very young patient, a patient that's only a few years old or a few months old, uh, and we put a <clears throat> medical device inside them, for example, um, uh, a, a, a septal closure device, device, a device that we put in a young child's heart to close an abnormal defect, a communication between the left and the right side of the heart. It's what we call a septal defect or a PFO. If we put a device in that patient when they're just, you know, a year or two old, then that patient is going to grow, you know, their heart is going to grow, and sooner or later that device may no longer be uh, acceptable, uh, and the, the, they might have to go in and remove it and replace it with something else. To have a, to have a, a, a doctor, yeah, I mean, having a doctor, Sorry? I'm just thinking like having, to, to be a parent and have a doctor, uh, you know, tell you like, oh, we're going to have to crack your kid's chest open, you know, every few years to, yes. to swap this out with something larger. Absolutely. Absolutely. And here's another quick example. Uh, there was an incident not long ago <clears throat> of a pediatric cardiologist who had a four-year-old patient with a, with a congenital defect in the heart. And that particular pediatric ca- cardiologist took a biliary stent and put it into that four-year-old patient. Now think about it. This biliary stent, which was designed to put in the common bile duct, it was not designed to put in the heart, so we're talking about putting it into the into a place in the body where it was never intended or tested to be put. On top of that, couple that with what I just said about the patient's heart growing, you know, you can you can see that the the number of problems here are are adding up. So these are all short-term solutions, and in the absence of something better, obviously a short-term solution is better than nothing. But, um, you know, uh, in, in one other technological challenge that I'll mention, Chris, uh, when we talk about putting permanent implants inside of uh, very young patients, most medical devices that are permanent implants in cardiology, for example, they're only tested for the equivalent of 10 years. So coronary stents, heart valves, vascular grafts, uh, the, the regulatory requirement is to make sure that these are safe and effective for 10 years. But if you take that same device and you put it into a patient that, let's say, five years old, and the average life expectancy of, for that kid is, let's say, 85 years old, now you're talking about that, that device being potentially in that patient for, you know, six or seven or eight or nine times longer than what it was originally tested. Right. And I don't think any of us, myself included, can predict what's going to happen to that device after it's been in a patient for that long of a time. So we have a lot, a lot of people coming up with, you know, short-term solutions and, you know, just trying to show some ingenuity. But, I mean, obviously, it sounds like we just aren't putting enough attention to this. Well, regrettably, Chris, uh, I, I have to say there's a, a certain degree of truth to what you just said. Um, because the market is so small, and it's not until we see stories like the one that you referred to uh, on the TV news that this really gets attention and people starts start talking about it. But once again, you know, as I said before, and I mean this sincerely, I refuse to use regulation as an excuse to hold me back. So let me give you another example of how we actually used current regulation to try to solve a similar problem. Um, There was a, a, a heart valve company 
that worked uh, that developed a heart valve that uh, for a particular congenital defect in a very small population of, of babies. It turns out that only a few tens of thousands of babies per year are born with this particular problem. Well, we brought that heart valve onto the market first um, under the humanitarian device exemption or the HDE. And then we did a label expansion later because just a few thousand patients per year is not going to uh, is not going to get the interest of any medical device company, especially a large one. So what we did in in step two was we went back to the FDA as a label expansion, and we used essentially that same heart valve as a PMA to go after a much larger indication. And as a result, the company was able to make uh, a lot more money. So this is a this is a way you know that a strategy that companies can use right now uh, without having to wait for government or FDA to create something new, using that HDE followed by PMA uh, strategy. Another yeah, strategy it, that I've yeah go on sorry go, on. go ahead no you go on other you have another strategy what what else could yeah. potentially do so another strategy that I've used very successfully is if you have an, a, a device on the market already. Uh, that's labeled for adults, but it's being used off-label in kids, then we can use something called real-world evidence. In other words, we take the data that people are collecting when the device is being used off-label, um, and we use that to support the label expansion to go back to the FDA and say, hey, we want to now expand our label in order to be able to use this in kids. Now, there's a lot of caveats to doing that, obviously, but the most important thing for our audience and, our, and, and people and companies to understand is, depending on the quantity and the quality of your real-world evidence, that might allow you to expand your label, that is to add a pediatric indication to your existing medical device without doing any additional, any new clinical trial. Once again, I have to, you know, emphasize it depends on the quality as well as the quantity of that real-world evidence. It's kind but of a newer area, but, but I've seen there's been a lot more announcements uh, in, in recent years from FDA about real-world evidence. So, I mean, that, it sounds exactly. like that's another route. Exactly, and this is a topic that, you know, we could, we could talk about in and of itself. But one other thing to keep in mind, Chris, about real-world evidence, uh, the acronym RWE is real-world evidence. It is not real U.S evidence, which means that uh, we can potentially use real-world evidence from outside the U.S. as part of a label expansion for a medical device already on the market here in the U.S. to add a pediatric indication or any other indication that we want on that label. So bottom line, you know, I've, I've shared with you a couple of examples, but uh, do we need, you know, uh, uh, improvements on the regulatory side to incentivize companies? Absolutely. But 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 independent of that, there are still much more things that we can do using the current regulation that we have uh, to do a better job than than we have. Because let's face it, Chris, um, the statistics that we have for medical devices that are specifically labeled and tested in kids today are not particularly impressive. You know, one one story that that comes to my mind as we talk about all this is that I mean the roots of the medical device industry at least here in Minnesota, where I live, go back to, um, you know, like, you know, heart surgery on, on, on kids at the University of Minnesota in the 1950s. I mean, Medtronic's roots go back to, you know, Earl Bocking helping to come out 
up with the idea of an external pacemaker for for children you know back uh, back at the in the middle of the 20th century so i mean the necessity of in, in that space of, of of helping children can definitely push innovation so i mean i mean it, it seems to me that in a way, it's almost like the device industry needs to go back to its roots more and realize that there's so much innovation you could do in the child space that you could then, you know, expand, you know, for, for adults in general. Well, I think you're, you're exactly right, Chris. And speaking of innovation, as I hinted at earlier, the ultimate and the best solution to this problem is not on the regulatory side or not even, you know, using real-world evidence or, or the HDE or some of the other things that I've, I've suggested in the short term. <clears throat> but I think the real solution here, as I said, is personalized medicine, whether we're talking about 3D printing or, or something else. Because, um, uh, you know, what difference does it make if I'm making one medical device for one patient? What difference does it make uh, if that patient is 80 years old or 8 years old or 8 months old or 8 days old? Uh, it's exactly the same. And the challenge that we face is that, think about it this way, Chris, when a company brings a, uh, develops a new medical device, uh, they typically will do, uh, if they do a clinical trial, they will do a clinical trial of, you know, maybe a few dozen or a few hundred patients because if you're putting, you know, a device in thousands of people, it makes sense to do a clinical trial of, you know, a few dozen or a few hundred patients. But when your intended patient population becomes one person, in other words, we're making one device for one person, what does a clinical trial look like? Is it even possible to do a clinical trial for an equal one? Chris, I think, you know, there's a solution to every problem. Well, so here's my solution, Chris, because I think there's a solution to every problem. And the first step is to get people to think. So when I look at a clinical trial as a biomedical engineer, I see nothing more than a validation. And for those in our audience that know something about validations, Chris, you can do a validation in one of two ways. One way we can do a validation is to validate the product. And the way we do clinical trials today, whether it's for a device or a drug, it doesn't matter, is we validate the product. But the other way that we can do a clinical trial is to validate the process. In other words, if we're going to require a clinical trial for personalized devices, I guarantee this technology is never going to go anywhere because it's just not possible for all the obvious reasons to do a clinical trial for n equal one. But instead, if we validate the process, that, I think, is the solution to the clinical trial enigma that personalized medicine presents. And once again, it's directly related to our discussion today of, of the lack of pediatric devices. Because as I said, whether the patient is 80 years old or 8 days old, the process, the, 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 the logic, if you will, is exactly the same. Does that make sense, Chris? That makes absolute sense. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because, I mean, I've I've seen that health providers in the pediatric space are they're early adopters of, of 3D printing, so they're definitely doing a lot more of the you know the uh, personal, personalized solutions than what you see in the overall population. I mean, you're seeing more you know models you know model you know like 3D modeling before heart surgeries. You're seeing more um, you know 3D printing of prosthetics you know because obviously you know children are growing and you can't just have a one size fit all fits all prosthetic. So you need to 3D print that. I mean, so I mean, you're starting to see that. So, um, you know, I guess maybe a more brighter note, I mean, it, it seems like that if we're going to figure out, you know, how to safely and effectively provide personalized medicine to people, um, maybe uh, maybe the pediatric space is where this is going to happen. 
Well, I couldn't agree more, Chris. And just to kind of, you know, to, to, to wrap this up, because I do not want to end this on a, on, a, uh, on a negative, on a downer. That's not my intent at all. Um, but I just want to, you know, it's become a first personal frustration of mine with so many in our industry, certainly not everybody, but many in our industry who continue to use regulation in the FDA as an excuse to hold us back. And I'm sorry, but that just doesn't serve any of us. We need to figure out how to solve these problems, given the tools that we have right now. And if we want to talk about, you know, creating newer or better tools in the future, absolutely. But we need to make so I've shared with you today in, in our audience, you know, a few examples of using our current regulatory tools. I've mentioned, for example, the Pediatric Devices Grant Program. I've mentioned using uh, real-world evidence. I've mentioned using more sophisticated regulatory strategies, <clears throat> like, for example, the HDE followed by the PMA. But on the technology side, as I said, I think the real solution here is with personalized products like 3D printing and other kinds of things. I think that's going to, to greatly minimize, maybe even eliminate a lot of these problems as well. So we are making progress, but there's a heck of a lot more that we can be doing right now in the companies that we work in today to serve these, uh, these clearly unmet clinical needs. And I would think, Chris, as a, as a parent of some very young kids yourself, you as much or more than anybody else will, will, important, will appreciate the importance of this issue. No, absolutely. I mean, we, uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we want to, you know, we, sh we shouldn't, you know, we, we need to be focusing, we need to make sure that our, our, our children are getting the best medical care too. I mean, this can't be, you know, just because there's a smaller market, you know, shouldn't be an excuse to, to, to make sure that, you know, that, that, you know, our health providers have the best tools available. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And, and as, a, as a grandfather myself, my, my grandson is going to be four in, uh, in a couple of months. You know, I, I, I understand those challenges as well. Well, Mike, this was a great conversation. Um, you know, really, really glad to have you on here again. Um, this is Chris Newmarker, you know, editor of Medical Design and Outsource. And thanks again for listening.